Hello and welcome to the American Association for Respiratory Care's Industry Insights, where we talk with industry leaders in respiratory care and get a sneak peek into how they're working to improve the quality of care and the respiratory care profession. This is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. This is the first of three podcasts addressing the concerns around aerosol delivery and the most recent guidance in the setting of COVID-19. These are industry podcasts sponsored by Aerogen LTD. The moderator has been selected by the AARC, but the persons interviewed have been selected by Aerogen. This first podcast explores the initial response to aerosol therapy during the COVID-19 pandemic. At the outset, I want to recognize the outstanding contributions of respiratory therapists to the care of patients with COVID-19. This has not been easy, with therapists putting themselves at risk to care for these patients during a global pandemic. Without question, many persons with SARS-CoV-2 are alive today due to the extraordinary skills and dedication of respiratory therapists. Now it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Mark Tidswell to the podcast. Dr. Tidswell is the director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit, Bay State Medical Center, Program Director, Critical Care Medicine Fellowship, UMass Medical School, Bay State, and Associate Professor of Medicine at the Tufts University School of Medicine and UMass Medical Center School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Tidswell. So perhaps we can begin by you telling us a little bit about your practice related to aerosol delivery prior to the pandemic. What devices did you prefer for aerosol delivery? What about uh, inhalers versus jet nebulizers and mesh nebulizers? So tell us a little bit about your practice around that. Hello, Dean. Thanks. I'm happy to talk. Uh, Before we jump into that, I also want to take the opportunity to thank everyone who's listening, who is a frontline worker for all the work they've been doing with sick patients with COVID-19. I think that's one of the most important things I can say today. And so if you're listening to this and you're taking care of patients at the bedside or you're supporting frontline workers, you are making a difference and we really appreciate the incredible effort that you make. So aerosol delivery, what did we do before COVID-19? Well, I've worked with a number of different nebulizers and I have to say my practice is almost entirely in intensive care and mostly on intubated patients. We know that there's, first of all, great data that meter dose inhalers really effectively deliver medication that targets the lower respiratory tract in intubated patients. Uh, And so in addition to MDIs, we've used jet nebulizers, ultrasonic nebs, and on occasion for patients with ARDS or status asthmaticus, we've used continuous aerosolization. Uh, For many years, I used a nebulizer that could be continuously refilled inserted into the circuit for prolonged periods, but that plastic nebulizer was somewhat limited by the accuracy of the dose delivery. That was my experience. So in recent years, uh, for really effective delivery, especially of continuous medications, but also bronchodilator aerosols, we've primarily used the Aerogen vibrating mesh nebulizer. 
and that's placed in line on ventilated patients. So what about patients who are not intubated? Uh, there, I sense that maybe you use jet nebulizers, or did you use meter dose inhalers or some of each? Yeah, I think um, meter dose inhalers when the patient is able, as you know, especially in the ICU, but even on the ward, patients are not always able to coordinate their inhalation appropriately. I think nebulizers tend to be the fallback, especially for those patients that have difficulty with meter dose inhalers. And some people have difficulty, maybe they can coordinate well enough to do the meter dose inhaler, but they uh, have a lot of cough or they react to the inhaled powder. And so those don't tend to be a good choice for them. So we've used, but we used a whole variety of, uh, especially before COVID, uh, didn't seem to make much difference and couldn't tolerate an MDI, you'd move to a, uh, a nebulizer. So you, I think you've already touched on this. So then what are some of the factors that drove you or drive you to choose one device over another? A lot of our listeners are respiratory therapists. So are RTs involved in this decision? Uh, so how do you decide which device to use on an individual patient? Well, I think it depends on whether you're talking about COVID or non-COVID, because I really have my strong preference with COVID. I like the meter dose inhalers. For one reason, it takes very little respiratory therapist time to deliver it. And therapist time is very important. They've got a lot of things to do, especially in the ICU. Uh, so when it's administered correctly, there's excellent delivery to the lower respiratory tract. You know, MDI or any device that's inserted into the circuit, and we'll come to this later, but can lead to the risk of uh, exhaled gas escaping into the room. So it's a, a great choice for t in most patients. Often my patients, again, they're, they're waking up from sedation. They may not be completely compliant. They may be weak. Their MDIs, are, uh, once they're extubated, are not really a, uh, a good choice. And we tend to go to NEBS first. Let's talk a bit more about aerosol delivery during mechanical ventilation. So you, you spend most of your time, much of your time in the ICU. So how are aerosols delivered in intubated patients who are mechanically ventilated? Sure. Again, uh, pre-COVID, we used a variety of different NEBs. Uh, inline NEB was pretty common. We have, uh, again, you've been using the Aerogen vibrating nest mesh nebulizer for some time now. I think I first started using that quite a bit when I was using continuous uh, NEBS um, because, uh, and you find out that the rate of delivery is highly accurate. And so you can use a pump to continuously refill the reservoir. With other NEBS, we found that either the reservoir would run dry or you'd have to continuously reset the pump rate or it would overflow. So that gave us a sense that not only was it convenient, but it was actually delivering at a rate that we were confident was accurate. And then I think there's some, there's some really good data about the physics of this device and delivering very precisely the right particle size for lower respiratory tract uh, delivery and impact. So then how did this all change when COVID came about? So did you continue to use the same devices, different devices? You know, what happened then? Sure. Well, that's a little bit of a tale for us, but I'll, I'll indulge me for a minute. 
So I think like many of you, when COVID hit, we weren't really clear how is this virus transmitted? You know, is it droplet, is it airborne? And, and how do we best protect ourselves? Obviously we were all PPE'd up um, so that we weren't gonna inhale it. But we, I think, made an, a tactical error from the outset that we quickly fixed. And that was, well, we number one, we ran out of negative pressure rooms within a couple of days. And we were concerned that if we delivered even humidification, there was a risk for that uh, emerging from the ventilator and getting into the room. Well, we switched to HMEs, we stopped giving NEBs, we tried to do MDIs, and within the first week, all of our patients, or most all of our patients, had so many secretions that they plugged up the HMEs, they plugged up their endotracheal tubes, uh, we tried inhaled solutions like mucomist and hypertonic saline to clear the secretions, totally ineffective. We had to reintubate people and we found we exposed ourselves to even more problems than we uh, had ever anticipated. So we switched back to humidified circuits and we looked at things that would allow us to not break the circuit at all. Uh, and so the solution was moving away from MDIs and moving away from the inline NEBs. Uh, well, the aerogen is inline, but it can be placed on the dry side of the uh, emidifier. And so that gave us some confidence that uh, we wouldn't have to break the circuit for even you know, the occasional four time a day NEB treatment or uh, MDI treatment. So that, that was our really our lesson learned that humidification was important, that we didn't need to worry so much about the mist that was going into the patient as the bio, what we call the bioaerosol or what the patient was coughing up, what were they, they were exhaling. So I think changing our focus from, you know, any mist is bad because that's a, an aerosol to focusing on protecting ourselves from what the patient breathes out. That became our, our focus at that point. I think a lot of hospitals did uh, move away from nebulizers to inhalers, at least early on in the pandemic, but there are some risks potentially associated with that, and you might have touched a little bit on that, but what? Uh, let's explore a little bit more some of the associated risk with avoiding nebulizers altogether. You know, a couple that come to my mind are, there are patients who cannot use an inhaler effectively, and you already had touched on that earlier in the podcast, or there are some medications that are not available in an inhaler. So if we're talking about bronchodilators, that's one thing, but there are other medications that we may need to administer to our patients, and it's not available in that formulation. So anything more you would like to say around that? That really captures my thinking entirely. Um, there's a limitation to which patients can use inhalers, particularly if they're not intubated. Um, not everyone can coordinate their breathing with, with inhaling from uh, an MDI. Um, it also usually puts the therapist right up next to the patient and some patients will have a cough that's provoked by the MDI. They don't like the powder. Uh, they don't like taking a deep breath that often stimulates cough. Uh, and you're right, there are a number of things that we have tried 
off-label uh, for COVID in particular that need to be given continuously. So yeah, there's, there are a number of reasons that many of us got away from using MDIs. Were there any specific guidance documents that you used, uh, say, early on in the pandemic related to the selection of an aerosol delivery device? Well, the guidance early on was fairly mixed. You know, looking back at uh, guidance, there was a call to get away from aerosols altogether by some groups. And... You know, if you look back at the first SARS outbreak in the, like 2004, re- reviewing that information, and, and people have done this, uh, there, were, there were a few centers where there were outbreaks related to, you know, at that point, not knowing what this was. Um, so outbreaks among the healthcare personnel. And the, really those outbreaks occurred related to intubations, tracheostomy, non-invasive ventilation, manual ventilation before intubation, but not related to nebulizer treatments. Now, I'm not, I wouldn't, on the other hand, say everything's safe because I think um, we really have to, to make every effort to maintain our safety and be overly cautious. I mean, we're talking about our health. So um, I wouldn't want to minimize the risk here. And, and since those early recommendations, I think a number of groups have come out and said, that nebulizing treatments is not an aerosol generating procedure. Uh, World Health Organization, British Thoracic Society, National Institute for Healthcare Excellence have all made statements that, you know, if you have to nebulize medications for patient care in COVID patients, that um, it shouldn't be thought of as promoting the aerosol that the patient generates. And again, this comes back to something I touched on earlier, which is, Medical aerosols, what we that the patient inhales, those should not carry any virus. Uh, you know, I, I rarely that that there might be you know with poor handling or if the equipment's not taken care of correctly, I suppose we could spread illness that way. But what we're having the patient inhale is clean, it's sterile. It's really what the patient coughs or inhales outwardly, or what we call a bioaerosol. It's a very difficult thing to study um, because we, people, you know, the physicists have not gone in the room to evaluate uh, aerosol cloud in uh, patients who have COVID. But in simulations, what we see is that um, the, you know, with, even with high flow or NIV or, um, you know, a low flow, 11 to 15 liters nasal cannula, that an, an aerosol cloud emerges from the patient and it's about a meter, you know, about three feet. Um, so staying outside of that zone is important. If, and reducing patient uh, coughing is important. So, and the other thing, and one of my colleagues has looked at this, uh, Dr. McGee, as well as a number of other people uh, in their simulations, just simply putting a mask over even high flow nasal cannula oxygen will reduce the aerosol cloud um, to well within inches around the patient. So it's, um, it's a really easy approach to uh, a, an additional layer of protection on top of all the PPE we wear. I think you've touched on uh, some things I was going to ask. My next 
question. So certainly nebulizers produce aerosols. Uh, so would you consider the use of nebulizers and aerosol generating procedure? And I think you already touched on that and pointed out that the medications that we place into nebulizers should be sterile medications. It's If, we're, if they're not, then we are not using best practice. Yeah, and I just, I'll just follow up on that. I think, you know, in addition to guidance about aerosols, there's there are guidance about the use of nebulizers in uh, in patients, particularly COPD patients who need treatments, even if they have COVID. Uh, and the recommendations from at least the Gold Committee is to use um, uh, nebulization of treatments, and in particular the vibrating mesh nebulizer, again, in order to maintain a closed circuit. So there are there, there are these terms that are thrown around, and I think you used a few of them. So we hear about bioaerosols, fugitive aerosols, aerosol dispersion distance. Uh, can you clarify those terms a little bit and then again touch on the issue of caregiver protection as it relates to these things right i i number one ppe is protective so i i'm would never say to do without ppe no matter what i think this is important in the care of these patients we need to be ready to take care of the next patient i think one important thing that we've learned is that patients stop shedding virus at some point. And that's been encouraging to me that even though we, we continue to wear protection, that in all cases, patients seem to stop shedding infectious virus after 10 days. And um, so we continue to worry about it. We continue to be safe, but I think it's reassuring. Um, so in terms of aerosol, I, I, I guess the, the way I think about it is what's the medical aerosol and that's what's inhaled. And again, that doesn't spread illness. Uh, it's the bio aerosol or the aerosol that has its source with the patient. Um, and that is spread. Well, a reasonable exhalation is about three feet and in patients who cough or sneeze, that can be much greater than that. So you have to be careful in those circumstances. So that's more along the aerosol dispersion distance. And it really depends on the size of the particles that are being uh, exhaled. So we talk about droplets, uh, which is what we think is the size of the particle that transmits COVID. Uh, so droplets generally fall out of the air within three feet. So I generally suggest doubling that to be on, very much on the safe side. Airborne particles are seen with diseases like uh, tuberculosis, and those particles are able to stay airborne for a prolonged period of time because they're so small. For the most part, what has been observed in, in uh, patients' rooms when people look at this is that there's a continuum. Most of the particles 
are droplet that carry virus. There may be some smaller particles, but eventually those also will fall out of the air. Our tendency then is to, um, again, to be on the safe side, we um, avoid, we keep the doors closed for an hour after any aerosol generating procedure like bronchoscopy or intubation or endotracheal tube change. The other term that's used occasionally is fugitive aerosols. So this is um, aerosols that escape. And, you know, we may see uh, the emergence of a mist from some point in a ventilator circuit or from uh, under a mask. And I think this is important to consider uh, as the, a place where there might be an exposure. Um, so uh, if, if it's humidification that's escaping, again, that shouldn't be an exposure because we're humidifying sterile saline, but uh, it also indicates that that may be a place where you could be exposed when the patient exhales. And so we pay attention to the fugitive aerosols as a way of uh, identifying maybe some problems within our circuit. So you've mentioned a number of times the importance of uh, caregiver protection, which I, I don't think we I don't think we can overemphasize. Uh, uh, could you just take a minute and highlight what is done at your hospital to protect caregivers when administering aerosol therapy? So you, you've touched on a few of these already, but maybe you could just sort of go down the list and, uh, and highlight the important things around caregiver protection. Yeah, you know, and I think that I personally consider nebulizing not to be an aerosol generating procedure. In patients who are not intubated, uh, they may cough, they may breathe deeply, they may have a number of things that promote them uh, exhaling infectious particles. And uh, we we use complete respiratory precautions during uh, nebulization treatment, during a BiPAP, especially with, when we use a vented circuit. Uh, I think we have to go with um, the protection. There's not, there's some data, but there's not um, clear, 100% clear cut data. And, you know, again, I think we need to keep ourselves healthy so we can take care of the next person as well as take care of ourselves, obviously. So after nebulizing therapy, during and after nebulizing therapy, the door remains closed for an hour until if there's anything in the air, it's, it is definitely settled out. Same with bronchoscopy, intubation, so we do a lot of clock watching, you know, when's that hour over and uh, we can open the door again um, and don't have to maintain full PPE. Obviously, it's, this is something we do in conjunction with our infection control service. And, you know, if there's new data, we're definitely going to um, modify our practice one way or the other. But I think our approach right now is the best that protects both the therapist and allows us to take care of the patient. Very good. Well, at this point, uh, we'll wrap up this podcast. Thank you, Dr. Tidswell, for sharing your thoughts with us today. I think this will be 
very helpful to respiratory therapists who will primarily be listening to this. Thanks for listening to the American Association for Respiratory Care's Industry Insights. Be sure to check our show notes page for links to our featured guest, as well as other podcast episodes. Be the first to know when our next episode airs by subscribing to our podcast. Until next time, keep on supporting the respiratory care profession. And again, Dr. Tidswell, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you.